Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. It's been called the permanent solution to a temporary problem, and it is on the rise. According to the World Health Organization, someone uses this solution every 40 seconds. While you're listening to this 15-minute program, 22 people will choose this permanent way out of their temporary problems. We're talking suicide with Dr. Timothy Jennings today on our broadcast. He's here to identify the risks and provide some tools for prevention of this worldwide killer. Dr. Jennings joins us today via Skype. Dr. Jennings, you're a psychiatrist. You've studied the human condition in depth. What's the most important thing we need to know about suicide? Well, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this because, as you know, there are increasing rates of suicide across the country. In fact, a Journal of American Medical Association article just came out showing that suicide is up 33 percent in young men over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so as we as we talk about this on the show today, I want to unpack the constellation or cluster of factors that increase risk and then actions we can take that can reduce risk. When we look at these kinds of numbers, Dr. Jennings, in your mind, what's going on? Why is it on the rise? What's so different now than it was 50 years ago? So I'm going to try to tie in social factors at the end of this, but I want to really focus on the factors that we have identified in individuals that increase their risk for suicide. Yes. And uh, people who have major depression, that's not just feeling sad for 10 minutes or even a day. This is a mental health disorder in which a person has altered brain function with decreased energy, motivation, dysphoria, major depression, increases uh, suicide risk 13 times or 13 fold. Mm-hmm. And what happens when people have have major depression or when people look at somebody who's committed suicide, they will often look at their life and say, oh, well, that's because they had this this bad stressor or this bad life event. And that's kind of what triggered it. But what they miss is that most of the time, untreated major depression leads to many of those life events. For instance, Mm. people who are depressed will socially isolate and they'll disconnect from their relationships. And so then relationships become strained or broken. Or people who are depressed will start calling in sick to work or their job performance will fall off and they'll either get disciplined from work or lose their job. Or people who are depressed don't pay their bills because they've lost their job and can't or because they're, it's just too overwhelming and they can't organize, initiate, and stay on top of life's responsibilities. And so they lose their house or they get repossessed cars or they have creditors calling. And so we look and see the stressors and people say, oh, that's why they committed suicide because they were behind in their bills or something. But they miss the fact that they may have major depression that hasn't been treated that led to this loss of function that led to then the problems. So the depression came first, you're saying? In many cases, Ah, that is exactly ah, what's happening. ah. And the depression is not being treated. Mm -hmm. So depressed people are significantly at more risk for suicide than non-depressed people when facing those stressors. So a depressed person facing financial problems is going to be much more at risk than a non-depressed person facing financial problems. Further, when we look at two people that are depressed, they've discovered that people who are depressed with a pessimistic mindset are at risk for suicide, where people that are depressed but have a hopeful mindset 
are not at the same risk for suicide. And then when they treat those two groups to remission, so both groups now are at a place where they're no longer depressed, mm -hmm. the ones that are at risk for suicide, even when they're not depressed, still look at life pessimistically. Mm -hmm. Bad things are going to happen. Nothing works out right. They have a negative pessimistic mindset. That increases risk of depression, which also increases risk of suicide. Well, absolutely. So we can look at ourselves. Are, are you saying, Dr. Ding, we can look at ourselves and say, what's our outlook on life? A separate from what's happening to us, just what's our basic outlook on life. That can be a marker for us. Yes, pessimism is a marker or increased risk factor, okay? When we look at this, then mood disorder or depression with uh, pessimism with three other variables are really a constellation of factors that identify the at-risk population. And those other variables are, one, we've looked at brain studies of people who commit suicide or have suicidal thoughts and later commit suicide, and they have differences in the way they read social cues. So we put them in a study where you show them pictures of human faces Cases that have different emotions being expressed. The people that are at risk for suicide misread those facial emotions, mm. particularly in ways that cause them to feel injured or hurt or slighted or rejected. So they have a brain processing problem where they don't properly read social cues. Now, if you take that out of a card or a picture and go into society, then they misread their social interactions with people in ways that are hurtful to them. Additionally, mood disorder, misreading, people who have risk for suicidality have impulse control problems. They react and they act impulsively rather than thoughtfully to things. And so they've done studies on people. They're brought into a room and they're told this very simple thing. You can have $50 right now, or if you sit over there and wait for 30 minutes, you can have $300. That's the study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People at risk for suicide take the $50 and leave. Wow. Wow. The people not at risk for suicide, they can actually, and so what's happened is they have impairments in their what's called response inhibition, that you have a response, but normal people can inhibit the response and activate a healthier decision for delayed gratification. People at suicide risk, even though they know that if they wait 30 minutes, they can get $300, that's a fact they can acknowledge, they don't have that inhibition, they take the 50 and leave. Sounds like control, that people that are, are at risk for suicide have a hard time controlling themselves. Am I right? They do have impulse control problems. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. They don't have good impulse control. And then the last piece that is an element that constellates together is they have impaired learning from life experiences. Mm. Every one of us have had experiences in life where we face something stressful, whether it's loss, whether it's conflict, whether it's rejection. We've faced something stressful, and then we got through it and we realized it resolved. Life got better. That wasn't the end of the world. We learn from those experiences. So when we face the next stressor, we don't catastrophize or fall into an all or nothing thinking. People that are at risk for suicide fail to learn from those life experiences. So when they face a new stressor, it's experienced as if they've never been through anything before. And it's experienced as if it will never resolve and they'll never get over it. Huh. I can certainly see why when someone comes into your office and has suicidal thoughts and you diagnose this person as with depression, one meeting with you is not going to do it. It's going to take, it's going to take a lot of work to get this person turned around. Am I right? You're exactly right. It, one meeting is not enough, but in a meeting, if we can offer hope, yes. people that want yes. to commit suicide, they find themselves in a circumstance in which they feel some type of distress and that distress they experience is being trapped and there's not going to be an escape. And so suicide often becomes their door to freedom or their escape out of their pain. And so when they meet with me, if we can have that 
that conversation and I can tell them this is treatable and we can get you out of your suffering without death, then as soon as there's real hope, then suicide risk goes down. Hmm. Now, if you think about the variables that I just described, depression, misreading social cues, impulsivity, and impaired learning, can you think of something in society that we could do to ourselves that would increase every one of those risks? Something that is consistently across the landscape of all human beings has the increasing of risk for depression, impairs our ability to read social cues appropriately, causes us to be more impulsive, and causes us to have impaired learning, and that's substance abuse and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Substance abuse and alcohol actually damages the brain circuits that give us good reason, thinking, impulse control. They uh, all increase risk of mood disorders. They impair our ability to socially interact appropriately. And so that's also why substance abuse and alcohol use is highly associated with suicide behavior, both in the chronic use and the acute use. So somebody is depressed already, and maybe yeah. they're not a drinker, yeah. um, but but they're depressed, and then they have, haven't gone to work. They've lost their job, and, and now, or their girlfriend's broken up with them, and now they go out and drink to drink in their sorrows, but then what does that cause? It causes impulsivity problems. They lose wow. impulse control. They become more dysphoric, more hopeless, less problem solving, and thus their suicide risk goes up. One of the things you have to understand, and, and, I'm, and I'm not really trying to talk about what I as a psychiatrist do. I want our listening audience to be aware of what these risks are mm-hmm. so that they can take and make decisions in their own life oh. to reduce those risks. And so they can identify family and friends and they can assist them in getting the help that they need. So there's many myths out there. For instance, there's myths about depression, that depression is just a lack of faith rather than an actual physical illness of the brain. And so people who believe depression is a lack of faith and they're just told to pray more, go to church more, they're going to get discouraged and they're going to be thinking, well, if I had more faith, I wouldn't be depressed, which only makes them feel more inadequate, which was only going to prevent them from getting the treatment they need. So those ideas need to be addressed. We also know in the brain research that there are genetic variables that confer risk for suicide. In fact, 50% of the risk of suicide is genetically inherited. Mm. 50% of the risk. Now, that means suicide runs in families. Does that mean if I have a family member, father, mother, uncle, grandfather who committed suicide, that I'm predestined to commit suicide? Not at all. It just simply means that you will be more at risk if you don't take vigilance to deal with these things, to avoid a mood disorder, to work on not being impulsive in your decision-making, but develop patterns of thoughtfulness in your decision-making, avoiding alcohol and drugs and so forth. But it's a genetic risk. And as we We've looked into that risk. There are a variety of genes involved, but we know that uh, serotonin and serotonin transportation, serotonin signaling in the brain, when we look at autopsies of people who commit suicide and look at the brain tissue of people who've died suddenly by accident, we see substantial differences in the serotonin transporters and the serotonin circuitry of those who've committed suicide. That's why the serotonin antidepressant medicines are so effective in not only treating depression, but also helping reduce suicide behavior over time. Is there any way that we can start increasing the amount of activity in our serotonin now, just after we hear this program? Is there something we can eat, some place we can go, some exercise we can do that will help? No, there's not. If you have these, if you have these genes, no, yeah. you, you, there's really not something you can do along these lines that can fix those genetic issues that you may or may not have inherited. You can take medication that can augment your serotonin signaling, but there isn't a natural remedy to do that. But there is 
the, the uh, lifestyle interventions that can reduce the strain on your brain circuitry and make you more resilient, like regular sleep, exercise, uh, stress management techniques, resolving relational conflicts, cognitive therapy, which is a truth-based therapy. All these things are very helpful. They won't fix the genetics. So if there is a substantial dysphoria or depression going on, then, then you really do want to get a comprehensive treatment plan that very well may include medication. What part does God and faith play in this, Dr. Jennings? Okay. Things that can that have been proven to work to prevent suicide. One, removing means. If somebody has a gun in their home and they're suicidal, get the gun out. If they have pills, get rid of the pills. Removing the means to do it has been proven to reduce suicide. Treating the depression with psychotherapies and medications has been proven to reduce suicide. Educating students in school about the risks and about the warning signs and about the help that is available also reduces suicide. Limiting media reporting of suicides because you know there's those clusters of copycats yes. when it's sensationalized. So limiting that media has also been proven to do it. And then what you're saying is this is another element. Why is it then going up now in this time in human history? Well, we know that neurobiologically, when you activate your brain's love circuits, love, altruism, higher purpose, other-centeredness, it calms the brain's fear circuits and reduces our sense of being overwhelmed. Historically, the values in our country, the historic values that people understood and lived by were God, family, country. And what's happened to where we find ourselves in society today is there's no God, mm -hmm. families are fractured and broken, and our country cannot be trusted. It's the enemy. 70 years ago, President, Democratic president said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Mm -hmm. But today the message is just the opposite. The country should do everything for you, which leaves people without an altruistic, without an other, without something bigger than self. It's just me. And, and when it's just me, that activates the fear circuit. I'm not going to get my fair deal. I'm not going to get my shake, and it only increases more anxiety and drives to more mental health problems, hopelessness, and discouragement. My, my, Dr. Jennings, thank you so much. Absolutely. And listener, comeandreason.com is the website. Lots of good resources there. Dr. Jennings has made sure that the education he was talking about is available to everyone at comeandreason.com. Until next time, this is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. <music>